10 years ago this month, in 2008, I received my welcome packet for Peace Corps. And they've changed this since, but 10 years ago, uh, first they told you what continent you were going to. And then months later, they told you what country you were going to. So I knew I was going to Africa. And I had this vision, as, as most volunteers do, of what that would look like. And then 10 years ago, in March, I opened up the packet saying, in, uh, in June, you're going to Lesotho, and here's the packing list. And the first thing on it is a down coat. <laughs> this is not what I expected to see. Well, it turns out Lesotho is a mountainous country. The village I was assigned to was at 10,000 feet. It's in southern Africa, so the, the temperatures are, are temperate to begin with. And so I found myself in the one Peace Corps posting in Africa where it snowed. <laughs> and you have an outhouse, but that's another, that's another story. So while I was there um, in my village, there was a, a clinic run by Partners in Health. So it was a, it was a pretty major clinic. And it brought in um, doctors from around the world. But for most of the time that I was there, the, the head doctor um, was from Zimbabwe. And he and I spent a lot of time together. And, and, um, and we would have these conversations about how unexpected it was for us to be in a place where it was so cold. Winter is the dry season, so it, it actually is a lot like Nebraska. It's just windy and cold for days upon weeks upon months. And so we started talking about the, the, um, the seasons where we came from and how different they were. I, I talked about, he talked about the, the winter being the rainy season, and, and I talked about the winter in Michigan when I grew up being the season where snow would just pile up over the course of the year and how we would build snowmen in our front yard when it snowed. So one morning about uh, a year after I was there, I, I woke up on a, a winter morning in July and walked to the clinic through snow. We had gotten like a foot of snow overnight. And I arrived at the clinic and there were no patients there because nobody wanted to brave the roads. And I discovered my friend from Zimbabwe and several of the people um, making a snowman. Uh, but of course, I, translation is hard. <laughs> and, and so the snowman had a, a round, you know, rolled body and a round rolled head, but it was perched on two pillars and it had two arms sticking out. <laughs> Like so. And we spent the entire day trying to figure out how you make a snowman hold its arms out like that. How it's structurally sound. We did nothing that we needed to do for work that day. We didn't do paperwork. We didn't see any, there weren't any patients, so that was fine. We didn't catch up on planning for the coming year. We just played in the snow and shared stories and had in the midst of a, of a really difficult place and a really difficult work. It was a joy to put that down for 24 hours and just play in the snow. So KK mentioned that our culture does not much like self-care. 
sometimes we might think of it as an unnecessary indulgence. Or even if it's necessary, it's still an indulgence. It's still a thing that if it wasn't necessary, we wouldn't do. So I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. How we got there. Where we might go. There's a book published about 100 years ago. Max Weber wrote The, the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And he argues that there's a connection between the, the Protestant theology of all work being sacred and the advent of capitalism. Particularly, he talks about a tailor bent to his task being the work of God, that that work is sacred, as sacred as a priest bent over scripture. Work is holy in Protestantism, so the acquisition of capital is worthwhile. He uses the Benjamin Franklin quote as sort of a, uh, a touchstone for this, the idea that time is money, that time not spent at work is time where you have lost income. That this is a, a uniquely American theology is there in implication. 50 years after Max Weber wrote the spirit of Protestant, or the spirit of um, Oof. the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Reinhold Niebuhr added another wrinkle. He said that we have a theology where work is seen as sacred and material reward in the world is a reflection of spiritual virtue. And now you put that theology down on the American East Coast in the 1600s and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy here in a land of plentiful natural resources, he leaves out the stealing of those resources. The theology that worldly possessions equate to spiritual virtue becomes obvious. Because everybody wants to think of themselves as virtuous. And here, everybody has all this land to expand on. Niebuhr calls this the irony of American history that the theology became fulfilled in the geography of the land. Privilege is confused with virtue. The irony of American history is that the entire country was born on third base and thought it hit a triple. But it is also what forces people into this idea that if things aren't going well, it's because I'm not working hard enough. That is very much a part of the narrative we tell ourselves. Unitarian Universalists are direct cultural descendants of New England Puritans. That is our inheritance as a religion. When you go to New England, all the old Puritan churches, the, the standing order churches, First parish in Concord, Massachusetts. It's now a Unitarian church. We are, for better or worse, the cultural inheritors of pilgrims. And so these ideas, this theology of work, I think is ingrained somewhat in our culture as Unitarian Universalists. Because there is so much to do 
There is so much to work on. Every minute I'm not working is a minute I'm not making the world a better place. How will we solve climate change if we are not all working 90-hour weeks every week to change things? The, the Richard Gilbert reading that we started out with was a response to E.B. White, who wrote, it is hard to know when to respond to the seductiveness of the world and when to respond to its challenge. If the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If it were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I arise in the morning torn between the desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. <laughs> so why, why would we do self-care? Why would we respond to the seductiveness of the world that E.B. Wright writes about? Why respond to the savoring of the world that Richard Gilbert writes about? I think the, the first reason is that self-care and work are not a zero-sum game. It's easy to, to feel like any time we spend away from our commitments, away from our work, is time wasted. Benjamin Franklin thought that. The part after time is money is a breakdown of how idle minutes can add up to money in the form of lost productivity. He that can earn 10 shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad or sits idle one half of that day, though he spends but sixpence during his division or idleness, ought not to reckon that only expense he has really spent, or rather thrown away five shillings besides. This is the ethical writing of our great founding generation. And that's true in a certain extent. Economics has a term for this, opportunity cost, that there is a cost to the choices that we make beyond the money that we spend on them. So you can spend $50 to go to Disney World but the cost of going to Disney World is not $50, it's $50 plus whatever you didn't earn by taking that day off. The opportunity cost for me to go to ministry was um, not taking further graduate courses in economics, so I can explain that part, but not the next one. <laughs> There's an opportunity cost to productivity at all cost. There's an opportunity cost in our health, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health. KK talked a little bit about the opportunity cost in physical health. Stress, is, stress kills people. Heart disease kills people. Anxiety disorders, one of, one of the, the hallmark, um, one of the hallmarks of anxiety disorders is a lowered immune response and emotional, dis emotional damage is closely related to overwork and spiritual damage. We have to live sustainable lives. We have to live joyful lives. Any good that we do has to be sustainable. Half an hour of savoring may give us hours of saving down the road. The other reason I think self-care is important is because there is nothing inherently wrong in happiness. 
This seems so straightforward, but it's, it's really counterintuitive. There was a debate for generations in philosophy over whether or not something that feels good is intrinsically good. There was an, this was the argument between the Epicureans and the Stoics. 200 years of philosophical history on this one question. Is a good meal inherently good? The Epicureans said, of course it is. Of course it is. Absent hurting some other person, anything that makes you feel joyful is an inherent good. The last part, the, the, the idea of not hurting somebody is important, but the inherent goodness, the intrinsic joy is also important. So a fine meal is good. Freedom from physical pain is good. Listening to fine music that brings joy to our lives is good. We should always interrogate what our pleasure costs. Yes, and at times the costs are too high, particularly when they come at the expense of another person. But we can get bogged down in, in moral seriousness and trying to figure out, is it worth it to just be in a moment and enjoy something joyful. The last thing, the title of the sermon, Self-Care as a Radical Act. We often associate this moralizing around hard work with small c conservatism, this idea that you know, real Americans work with their hands, and you work to the bone, and you scratch by, and you get just enough the virtue of hard labor. But it's just as present, even more so, I think, in radical progressive spaces. We want to demonstrate how committed we are to changing the world. There's a, a perverse pride in naming how many community meetings we've been to, how many letters we've written, how many hours we've put in volunteering at nonprofits, even if we don't much enjoy that volunteering. There's a, there's a pride in the sacrifice. And even if we don't get proud of that kind of nose to the grindstone work, it's easy to get bogged down in the grind of the change we need to make in the world, to worry about what's not getting done, to worry that we will not be able to surmount these huge things. So to live a joyful life, to savor the world, to stay committed to, to our core values, but not use that as an excuse to skip past the joy and beauty of the world, that is a radical act. That is an act that takes this paradigm of work and virtue and breaks it. We're not the only people to ever think this. In Orthodox Judaism, this is, this is the idea of the Sabbath. That there is a set time where no matter what work you've been doing, you set it down for 24 hours and you savor the world. Abraham Heschel was one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. He was prolific in his writing. He wrote a book on the Sabbath, but the introduction to it is written by his daughter, 
And the introduction to it is simply describing what life in the Heschel household was like on Friday night. Susanna Heschel writes, Friday evenings in my home were the climax of the week. My mother and I kindled the lights for the Sabbath, and all of a sudden I felt transformed emotionally and even physically after lighting the candles in the living room, which had windows overlooking the Hudson River facing west, we would marvel at the sunset as it arrived. The sense of peace that came upon us as we kindled the lights was created in part by the hectic tension of Fridays. Preparation for a holy day, my father said, was as important as the day itself. During the busy afternoons, the atmosphere grew increasingly nervous as my mother shopped for groceries and cooked. My father came home from his office an hour or two before sunset to take care of his preparations. And as the last minutes of the work week came close, both of my parents were in the kitchen frantically trying to remember what might have been forgotten. Had the, had the kettle boiled? Was the black covering the stove? Was the oven turned on? Then suddenly, it was time. 20 minutes before sunset. Whatever hadn't been finished in the kitchen, we simply left behind as we lit the candles and blessed the arrival of the Sabbath. Abraham Heschel writes, the Sabbath comes like a caress, wiping away fear, sorrow, and somber memories. What would it look like in our lives, in your life, not to give up the hard work, but to set aside time to savor life. I can testify to its importance. This was a busy week. Thursday night, I came home from another evening meeting here. Came home to Stacy and, and said, ah, I haven't written a sermon yet. <laughs> Friday's supposed to be my day off. I, I have to to write something. I have to be able to say something on Sunday. And then Stacy uh, threatened to steal my phone <laughs> and my computer and said, no, you're going to take the day off. You're going to be home. You're going to take Friday off. And you're going to write the sermon on Saturday night. And so these are notes rather than a manuscript. <laughs> so I wrote this on Saturday afternoon. It's not the cleanest sermon I've ever written. It's not the most deeply considered. But that was the right choice. To take 24 hours to savor life, to be with my family, to say the work will still be there. And it will get done, but not today. Sometimes it's worth it to take a day off to build a snowman. And then go back to work afterwards. Self-care is more than a, a psychological idea. It is how we stay human. <laughs> 